That was when I decided to bring other coaches into the program. And so we broke through that ceiling, not by sacrificing the intimacy of the program just to increase capacity, but instead by increasing the capacity we had in terms of intimacy itself. Welcome to Break the Ceiling, the show where we help agencies and consultants bust through self-imposed growth ceilings by shoring up their operations and increasing their capacity. I'm Susan Bowles. I'm your growth architect to help you build the systems that you need to double your revenue and lower your stress. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to episode one of the Break the Ceiling podcast. I am so excited to be here with you all. So for our first theme on Break the Ceiling, we're gonna be talking about default decisions. And default decisions are those decisions that you make in your business that you may or may not even realize that you're making a choice about. That might include how you choose to structure your business. Like, are you an agency? Are you a consultant? Do you work hourly? Do you work on a project basis? or what technology you choose to use, or who you choose to hire, how you choose to grow. Those are all decisions that it's very easy to make by default, following common advice, without really thinking about what you or your business actually needs and why. So this feels like a perfect theme to launch with because many of the decisions that you make are ones that happen at the beginning of your business. So for example, maybe you chose which accounting software you were going to use based off of asking a question in a Facebook group and somebody said that QuickBooks was awesome, so that's what you decided to use. Or you posted and asked a question about project management, somebody told you Trello was great, so you picked that. These were decisions that didn't necessarily have a great reasoning behind them. You just needed something and that worked well enough. But what happens is that a lot of those decisions that you make at the beginning of your business don't necessarily serve you well going forward. And as you try and grow and scale, you'll often hit the ceiling where you kind of can't grow anymore. You don't have the capacity to grow. And often those decisions that you made at the very beginning of your business end up being the culprit. So experimentation is totally normal when you're new to running a business and is actually kind of part of the process. So when you're starting out, you don't know what you don't know. So you find a framework to follow or you look for somebody to tell you what to do. But eventually you realize that frameworks don't work in every situation and every project management tool doesn't work the same for each individual business. Or you may just have a different way that you wanna work than what everyone tells you you should. And that's when you need to start questioning decisions that you made by default back at the beginning of your business. And are they still serving you now? Or are they actually causing problems that are limiting your ability to grow? So our goal with this particular theme is to get you thinking about the decisions you might have made that maybe you didn't realize you were making an actual choice, or you did know that you were making a choice, but you didn't know why. And just to encourage you to start questioning why you made the choices you did and to give you some ideas of other possible ways of running your business, ones that might make your business easier to run. So during the series, we'll talk about how you might structure your business or even why you're in the business you're in in the first place. We're gonna talk about financial decisions, hiring decisions, technology decisions, and give you some ideas to consider. But mostly, I just want you to start asking yourself, why did I make this choice? And does it still serve my business? So my first guest in the series is Tara McMullen. Tara is a podcaster, writer, and a small business community leader. With over a decade of experience helping thousands of small business owners grow their business, she's on a mission to change the dialogue about what's really working from hype to candid conversation. She is the host of the What Works podcast, a top small business podcast that's been recommended by Forbes and Entrepreneur. And she's also the founder of the What Works Network, a community hub for small business owners. She is also, incidentally, the person who came up with the name for this podcast. So it seems really fitting that she's my first guest. Hi, Tara. Thanks for being here today. We're so excited to have you. Well, I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much for asking me, Susan. Awesome. So we are just going to jump right in and talk about what works. 
So what works is pretty much an entire business based around the concept of fighting default decisions and encouraging exploring options about how you choose to run your business. So can you tell me a little bit about how the community came to be and how your business evolved into that? Yeah. So first off, I love this topic of default <laughs> default decisions because in my own personal development now, in my business development, like it's pretty much everything that I think about, which is probably why what works is organized in the way that it is and why we stand for the things that we stand for. And I'll get to that in a minute. But it just struck me as you were asking that question that I think for a lot of people, the default is a standard that we don't know where it came from. Right. But it's not it's not actually something that's internal. It's not actually something that is innate to us. It comes from outside sources. And so where what works came from is me seeing in our marketplace, which you know, we operate in the small business education space. There are so many marketers out there saying, this is the way to do things. This is how you grow your business. This is how you market your business. This is how you run your business. And those messages have permeated through every layer of this small business ecosystem in a way that then ends up with small business owners thinking that's the only way to do things, that they have to default to marketing their business in a particular way, showing up on social media in a particular way, developing particular products even, coming up with brands that are very, very cookie cutter because they're based on some default that has been handed to us by, in fact, marketers. And so where What Works came from is saying, you know what, guys, you don't have to do it that way. Whatever marketer you've been listening to for the last eight months or eight years that's gotten you sold on this particular thing that you haven't been able to execute successfully in your own business, there's a good chance that's just not what works for you. And the good news is there's a hundred different ways you can do these things. There's a thousand different ways you can do these things, but you need access to diverse perspectives, different people's approaches, the experience that people have in different kinds of marketplaces and in different industries so that you can make a better decision for yourself so that you can understand where your own personal default came from and where you can start to intentionally make a different choice. So for us, with What Works, we do that in two main ways. One is on our podcast, where my goal, uh, my job really, is to find, to pull out as many different stories as I can, examining one issue from different angles. So just as a for instance, in September, our theme is all about scale. And one of the defaults in our market is when business owners want to scale, they start developing online courses. Well, that's not the only way to scale. And so my job for September was to find six or eight guests that I could talk to and say, tell me how you scaled your business and why did you do it that way? And we're literally not talking to anyone who is selling an online course <laughs> because I wanted to disrupt that default decision. So that's the podcast. And then we also do it in our community, the What Works Network. And it's very similar premise to the podcast in that our job is to gather as many different perspectives together as possible, show people all the different possibilities. But instead of me just delivering that to people, it's an interactive, engaging community network for people to ask their own questions, to source their own examples, and to kind of work through some of the things that we just can only touch on in the podcast. So you're absolutely right. The business itself is completely built around this idea of disrupting the default decision, disrupting the assumption, disrupting the bias, and delivering to people something that they can use to make their own better decisions. I love that. And I completely love the perspective that you're really focusing on opportunities to grow and scale your business without courses, because I think that's yes. it's so pervasive that I find myself having to actively convince myself not to do a course. It's out there in the marketplace so much that that is how you grow and scale a service business that I really have to like shut myself down occasionally and be like, you don't need a course. You don't need a course. So I love the concept of other ways to grow and scale your business and do the things that you want to do without a course. 
So can you tell me about a time that you personally realized that you made some kind of decision by default in your business? And how did you go about recognizing that? Was there a particular sign? And then what did that cause you to do differently? Yeah, so I totally didn't plan this, but it was when I tried to turn a group coaching program into an online course. (laughs) So before What Works existed, we ran a group uh, business coaching program called Quiet Power Strategy for about five years, which was an awesome way to engage with small business owners, to help them grow their businesses, to help them really build the foundations of their businesses. And a core tenant of that program was that it was interactive, that it was group coaching, that people talked to me, talked talk to the other coaches in the program and talk to each other. So it wasn't just do this and then do this and do that. It really was like, I don't know what the next step for you is at this juncture, but like, here are the tools that we can use to figure it out. And like, let's figure it out together. And we had reached capacity at different points on that program. And I'd expanded in different ways. And at a certain point, it just seemed like the obvious logical next step was to turn it into a DIY. You can walk yourself through this system. Here are our tools. Here is the methodology. Let me make some videos. I will sell them to you. It'll be great. It was not great. It was crappy (laughs) because it wasn't one, two, three step enough for the people who wanted to buy a DIY program. And it certainly wasn't interactive enough for people who wanted that more top level strategic approach to their business. So it was really mediocre to both groups of people who tried to purchase it. That's by far the thing we've had the highest refund level on ever. I don't remember what it was in particular, but you know we've always had super low refund rates and it was still on the low side. While people were working through that program, I hated opening my email inbox. I hated talking to my ops person at the time because I was just so prepared for the next person to say, hey, this is crap, or the next person to say, this isn't this isn't what I was expecting to get from you. I've lost trust in you. And I'm like, no. And, you know, looking back on it with plenty of hindsight now, I can say, exactly why it didn't work out. It wasn't that the program itself was crap. It's not that I'm crap, which is, of course, where my head goes, uh, like just about everybody. But instead, it was the wrong choice. It was the default decision. It was the wrong choice for my business, for my brand, for my values. But I did what everybody else was doing because it seemed like low-hanging fruit to add that little revenue stream. Whereas if I would have just stayed the course you know, who knows where that would be now. I might have still wrapped it up and started what works. Or maybe, who knows, maybe we'd still be offering some version of that today. But it made me realize just sort of where I had gone with the business. And it was it was a very visible and real reminder of the fact that I had gotten off track making those default decisions. Absolutely. So You've switched business models a few times. You kind of started out with the consulting, the small group programs, progressed into the community model, and now you're sort of headed back in the service business direction with the new podcast production company. What were some of the biggest challenges you discovered switching between types of business models? Did having experience in a previous kind of business help you or actually hinder you when you when it came to like switching models? Yeah, so I mean, I would say that mostly having a previous business, having that experience, having confidence, being able, having resilience, being able to weather failure and change, those things all help. However, there are a lot of defaults in one business that are not defaults in another business. So I'll give you a specific example. When I moved from the coaching, consulting, kind of education space business that we had with Quiet Power Strategy into the community-based model that we have with What Works, I started to realize very early a lot of the assumptions that I had, a lot of the defaults that I had I was very purposefully stripping those. I mean, that's why we were making the change. I wanted to get away from that as much as possible. Things like removing the educational resources, things like making sure we were connecting people to people and not just people to me, that kind of thing 
That was why we were doing what we were doing. That made a lot of sense to me. One of the things that I carried over from the old business into the new business, however, was my marketing style. The only way I knew how to market a business was as an educator, a trainer, an expert. And so as I was trying to build up this community, I would send out informative emails, I would write blog posts, I would teach webinars. And then at the webinar, I would say, all right, guys, if you loved this, you're going to love our community. I'm not teaching you anything more, but you're going to love our community. <laughs> there was a real misalignment between the way I was trying to market and sell and the value proposition of essentially the new business, the new offer that we had. And it took me a long time. It took me over a year to realize that the way I was marketing our business was actually hurting our chances of enticing new members. And I needed to completely rethink all of my defaults when it came to who I was as a marketer and how I was actually marketing, which has been just the coolest journey that I've been on. It's been really hard, but it's been so eye-opening and such a creative process to think through what does it look like to market a community-based business? Where am I important and where do I need to get the heck out of the way? Like those questions have been so interesting to me to answer and so fulfilling to answer. And we have learned so much about what kind of message and what kind of delivery for that message is going to make the most sense. Luckily for us, we realized that the podcast was sort of the perfect way <laughs> to market the business. And so we've been able to really double down on that in the last year. Um, we also realized that just letting other people tell stories and, and raising those voices, highlighting those voices has been a really important way to market the business. But those were things I would have never done in the old business. Now starting yet another business. So now we're not, we're not shutting one down and starting a new one. We're literally adding a second business um, that I'm working on with my husband. I would say mostly my previous experience, again, has been an incredible help with this business. I think we're too early to know what my blind spots are going to be. <laughs> but there is so much that I've been able to learn in running the sort of training type business and running the community-based business that launching into more of a productized service business, I am able to take with me. And so like, just as a, for instance, it is a service-based business. It's very hands-on. And yet we're building the business with scale in mind from the get-go, right? So even though it's just him and I for now, we've got an org chart in mind. I know who we're going to hire when. I know what that's going to look like. I know what training looks like. Every single time we think through, like, how can we make this offer better? How can we ensure that, you know, he's going to be able to deliver it instead of me delivering it? That's an effort to make sure that later on, someone else can do it and then someone else can do it and someone else can do it so that we can build our capacity very quickly as we need to. And so this is also the first business I've ever built that has an exit strategy in mind, which is so exciting, right? Like with what works, I can see the potential for an exit strategy. I know that we're building something really valuable. There's also a lot of unanswered questions about can a community survive without the charismatic leader that founded it? I mean, there's so many instances of that just totally breaking communities down. I'm, I hope that's not the case with us, but it's a really very real concern. This podcast production business, on the other hand, I know we can hand the keys off to somebody else and let them take it, right? So if when and if it comes to that time where we're handing it off, we're selling it, we're passing it on, whatever that looks like, I'm already good on that. I know we're going to be ready for that when that time comes. So it's been a really fun process figuring out what I want to take with me and what I really like what ends up being a blind spot. It's funny because I had a I experienced a similar issue. So when I my very first business was like back in the early 2000s, I started out as a professional organizer, like before professional organizers were a thing. And um, I literally put up like a Weebly website and got a client. You know what I mean? Like it was back in the days where there was I was the only one like there wasn't I wasn't competing against anybody and then kind of moved out of that service online kind of business into physical businesses. And we owned a guest ranch and we ran a 
brick and mortar running store and they were physical businesses. And then when I kind of realized I didn't want to run that kind of business anymore and went, okay, what do I, you know, I'm going to strategically think about building a service-based business and an online business. And I was very conscious of all of the things that I didn't like about running the previous businesses. And so I knew I didn't want a physical business. I knew I didn't want a business with a lot of capital and that sort of thing. But I sort of expected that 15 years later, it would almost be the same thing. And so I kind of went in, you know, I hadn't really thought about how much online business has changed since the early 2000s. It just didn't really occur to me. And so I experienced this whole thing where I expected the business to, you know, put up my website and people would just come and that's not the world anymore. And there was also a really big transition from the physical business, which it's easy, you're selling shoes or you're selling a guest ranch and people know what those things are, to transitioning to selling myself and figuring out how to describe what it is that I do. Um, and it was a really different journey where I agree there were a lot of things that I brought in, like the ability to run a scalable, high volume kind of business. I can scale things very easily now. But I had the opposite issue to you where I couldn't really like figure out how to sell myself or market myself. And I was really uncomfortable kind of being in my own company and really uncomfortable with the concept that it was me. <laughs> um, so very similar situation where there's just blind spots that you just don't realize that you have in a new business model. Yeah. And those blind spots can be assets in the previous business. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Me being able to get on a webinar and sell everybody on how much I can help them grow their businesses, that was not a bad thing. That was a really good thing in the previous business. In this business, it's not good at all. And I should not be doing it. Our strengths and our weaknesses, our blind spots and our assets, like there's always two sides to every story. And so I think sometimes maybe when it comes to examining what those default decisions are, like that's one thing that we have to look at. Like, okay, this was a good thing that I was doing before. I assumed it was a good thing now, but Maybe this is an assumption, a default that I need to question moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes I really think that experience can kind of bite you in the butt because you don't, you know, you don't really look at it with new eyes or new, just come up with creative solutions. You just default to what exactly, default to the product and the process and the systems that have worked for you before. And um, sometimes I think it can take you a little bit longer to come to that conclusion when you have experiences, especially experience that has worked really well. Coming around to the conclusion, I think you might have been a little bit more creative and gotten there a little bit faster <laughs> had you actually not had the experience. Um, because maybe you would have gone out and questioned things and found networks like What Works where you would have asked a question that said, hey, guys, what have, what have you done? Where when you come from a place of experience, sometimes it's hard to remember that there are other ways of doing business and other ways of operating. Yep, absolutely. Okay, so when you have in any of your businesses, I guess, is there a particular time where you kind of hit a ceiling, maybe a growth ceiling or basically an area where you felt you, you couldn't scale, you couldn't break through? How did you know you were at the ceiling? What did it feel like? And how how did you know that you hit a ceiling? So I think for me, ceilings always come down to capacity in one way or another. And then, you know, when my capacity is tapped out or when my team's capacity is tapped out, I know I'm at a ceiling and something needs to change for us to move forward. So I think two instances really come to mind, one in the current business and one in the previous training business. So with Quiet Power Strategy, with the group coaching program, for the first few years, I was the only coach. And so I only wanted to take on so many clients per cohort because I knew I could only give attention to so many people and deliver the program in the way that I wanted to deliver it. And so that was anywhere between 15 to 20, maybe upwards of 25 people at a time, which meant our capacity was good. Like that brought in plenty of revenue, more revenue than I certainly ever expected to make um, when I was starting my business. But I got the impression that, you know, maybe I could make more. And I was also interested in saying like, how could I expand my capacity? What would this have to look like in order for me to take 45 students or 
60 students instead of 20? Could I take 100? What would that look like? How would things need to change? And so that was when I decided to bring other coaches into the program. And so we broke through that ceiling, not by sacrificing the intimacy of the program just to increase capacity, but instead by increasing the capacity we had in terms of intimacy itself um, by training other coaches. So I took a group of people through the program. I explained how I did it, what I was thinking about, how I worked with the clients. Uh, and then we hired some of them into the business so that they could work with our clients. So that instead of me having a cohort of 20 clients, for instance, we could have three cohorts of 12 to 15 clients going at any time, any given time. So we didn't scale up huge at first, um, and we really never scaled up huge, but we incrementally added capacity through the coaches that we were training. And just by sort of understanding how many groups could we fill, how many coaches could we hire and train, and really looked at breaking through that way. And once we did that, yeah, we were able to double, almost triple revenue again and really break through in that way. Now, there were a lot of other challenges there that I could solve so much better today <laughs> than I did then. But that was a huge breakthrough for us. Um, and I still very, very vividly remember sitting at a friend's uh, dining room table, jotting down my plan for getting this done and how I was going to do it in a short period of time. And, you know, it was just, it was a really, really exciting time once I figured out, okay, this is the problem. This is how I'm going to break through. Another one that we've run into with what works is less on the growth side and more on the operational side. So one of the assumptions that we made with our community-based model is that events are a really great way to get community members engaged. It's a great way for them to meet each other. It's a great way to up the energy in the group. And that is very, very true. Events are phenomenal for that. And also, so we thought more events equals better. <laughs> and so we filled our weeks with events for our members. We wanted to have something at every, you know, not in every time slot, but throughout the week, you know, we wanted to have something for the Australians and the New Zealanders. We wanted to have something for the people in Europe. We wanted to have plenty of stuff for the Americans and the Canadians. And so we really filled up our calendar with events and our team was really at capacity. I mean, we were making it work and the schedule wasn't that crazy, but we really, we were at, we couldn't have added anything more. Uh, and the problem that we ran into was that very few people were showing up. You know, we would host an event and maybe three or four people would show up. And when that happens day in, day out, every single week, we start asking ourselves, why are we bumping up against the ceiling when we're not actually getting anything for it? Like, what is the ROI on our capacity being full here? Um, so that was a time when breaking through the ceiling actually meant really pulling the plug on a lot of the things that we were doing and looking at how we could do the events that we had more effectively in fewer quantities so that we could reclaim that time so that our members could reclaim that time and so that hopefully we could get more results from them. The result, the outcome of that was almost instantaneous. Like we reworked the schedule, um, started sending out reminders for the new way the events were being delivered and suddenly, you know, attendance went way up. And so then our events legitimately are a great way to get people engaged and a great way to up the energy, but we're not bumping up against that capacity ceiling anymore. Yeah, I love the idea of um, increasing capacity by choosing to do less, yes. <laughs> you know, by just saying, can we just not do that? Okay, let's just not then. <laughs> or let's really reduce it. Because that's honestly the simplest way to go about increasing your capacity is just stop doing things that don't matter. Right, exactly. Completely agree. So we talked a little bit about the operations side of the business. And I know that in What Works, you guys have a pretty standardized set of operational processes. Was there a particular change or particular focus that you made in uh, What Works or any of the other businesses, actually, that made a really big difference to you in terms of how easy or hard the business was to actually run? Yeah. So a lot of this, honestly, is very 
incumbent on me. Like the problem was me from the get-go in terms of what wasn't working, where we didn't have standardized procedures, what wasn't flowing in the business. And so I would say there are like little inflection points that I could point to in terms of what changed to make the business run more smoothly. But I think the heart of it really for us has been being willing to make it a gradual process and not feeling like we're going from chaos to complete organization all at once. And again, part of the reason we couldn't do that is because of me, but I know I am not I, I don't I think that's unusual. I think that's no. pretty that's pretty normal. <laughs> pretty normal. So I'm going to be okay with myself. Um, So I had a full-time operations person, I guess it was about three years ago now, that really laid the foundation for starting to turn chaos into organization. We call it Asana 1.0. So Asana, the software, great. But our Asana, that was our 1.0. And it was sort of a loose organization of everything that was going on in the business, which was too much at the time, which was also part of the problem. So just making sure that some processes were documented, that some tasks were assigned, that there was information where, or that most information was somewhere somebody could find it if they needed it. Just getting that down helped immensely. And at the same time, it very quickly wasn't good enough. And it also very quickly felt clunky. Like once you take a step in that direction, it's like, okay, well, but shouldn't this work better than it's working right now? We couldn't have gotten there in one fell swoop, but by implementing our Asana 1.0, we were able to start opening the doors to Asana 2.0. So a different operations person, Shannon, who's still with us, came in and reworked that Asana 1.0 system, reorganized things, documented new things, assigned things in different ways. And we got that to a place where it was really good and the team felt good about it. The team was really using it. I, unfortunately, was still not using it because it didn't feel good to me. And so we started looking at what needs to change about Asana and the way we have this set up so that I can use it, so that I can be a part of the systems and the processes that are already happening, but that I'm just honestly like being, they're working around me at that point, right? So we started looking at it and it always came down to the problem with Asana was Asana for me. And, you know, I know there are plenty of people who love it and God bless you all. I do not. And it did not make me feel good about being a big picture leader. I always felt like I was getting dragged down into the nitty gritty in a way that wasn't helpful. That's when we discovered Notion and the ability to build systems, I would say more creatively, like there's less structure in Notion. So we were able to impose our own structure on it. So a lot of what we were doing in Asana 2.0 got moved over into Notion from a software perspective and from a process perspective. But what changed was how things were organized and my relationship to it. And so it sounds like this really ridiculous, like, oh, gosh, Tara, like, why couldn't you just figure out how to use Asana so that that didn't have to happen? Is it really a software issue? I don't actually think it's a software issue, but I do think it's a like it's a relationship issue. It's a integration issue. And for me, it took changing software to finally fully integrate myself into the systems that already existed in the business. And when I was able to fully integrate myself into the systems that already existed in the business, then of course the whole business worked better because no one was working around me anymore. I wasn't bottlenecking anymore. It was just, this is how we run things. And of course we've been able to since improve on systems and re-examine things that we had just done a certain way because they were set up that way in Asana. And so it's been a great opportunity for, again, rethinking those defaults and rethinking those assumptions. But the most important part is that I found a method I could work in that the rest of the team could work in. So we were all on the same page. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, there's a lot of different project management systems out there for a reason. Yes. Is because you have to find something that works the way that your brain naturally works. And I think how you are with Asana, I'm the same way with Trello. Like every time I look at it, I'm like, I can't, I just can't. (laughs) 
in theory, I get Trello. I'm like, in theory, I get it. When I actually go and try and like manage, it's fine if you have one project to manage. If you are a project manager and you manage multiple projects, it really quickly gets unwieldy. But again, software is very often one of those default decisions that people make that they start a business and they post in a Facebook group and they say, what project management system should I use? And somebody says Asana or somebody says Trello and off they go. And, you know, as they grow from them to multiple team members or from one client to 10 clients, systems just start getting unwieldy and you can't have that big picture view. But I think it is important to be able to find something that works in the way that you work, which is so nice to see systems like Notion and ClickUp and ones that are a lot more flexible. They don't inherently come with a decision about how you need to structure your data or structure your tasks or structure your work. They give you the flexibility to kind of determine that for yourself, which I think makes them infinitely more useful for a lot more people. But it also makes it a lot harder to to actually set up, you know, when you get in and it's just a blank screen that says, tell me how you want to organize your work. A lot of, you know, you get there and you're like, uh, I don't know what to do with my hands. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but okay, so I love this because we're getting so meta right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we opened Notion and we we're like, oh, let us, let us figure out how we want to work with this and how we want to organize our work. But that is when we talk about Notion and when our members try it out, some of them are excited and also tons of them are like, but I don't know what to do here. There's a blank screen. And we're like, yes, exactly. There's a blank screen. And they're not excited about it. And it's because they're used to a piece of software. They're used to a planner. They're used to a coach that gives them the decisions all laid out for them. And they just kind of insert the work into the buckets. Right, into the buckets, into those default decisions. And we've, we are trained like that from kindergarten on, right? Like that's the kind of society that we live in. And some of us deal with that better than others. <laughs> <laughs> so I think a system like Notion, and I, you know, I don't have a ton of, I don't have any experience with ClickUp, but I'm so excited about the way you talk about it. A system like that where you're forced to make decisions is such a phenomenal opportunity to say, wait, why do I do it this way? And why is this system in this order? And why is this process being done like this? Why does this workflow work like this? And really re-examining those things so that you make sure that you're doing things because it matters and not just because it's a default. Yeah, and definitely that there's a, a purpose behind it, a reason that you're making that choice. Uh, versus just, well, it says I have to click done. I will click done. Um, so the ability to really flexibly organize your data in a way that makes sense to your business. You know, not, not every business has the same workflow or deals with things in the same way. And so I love that there are flexible systems like Notion, like ClickUp. Coda is another one that's coming that they're all very flexible but also I think can be very intimidating to the people who are used to having a framework and used to having somebody give them guidelines on how to how to work. And a lot of the work that I do with clients is literally just asking the question, like, why do you do that? Why? <laughs> yeah. And then having them stare blankly at me for a little bit and then working through why we do that. And should we should you still do it the same way? Or is there a possibility to be able to scale your business by making a different choice? I, I love the fact that systems like Notion and ClickUp force you to make choices with a reason behind them. But yeah, I think there's definitely a, um, a very steep learning curve. <laughs> For sure. Similar to the question that you ask of like, why do you do it this way? With clients, with members, with mastermind folks all the time, I ask, what do you want? Yeah. Right? Do you want to work this way? What do you want this product to look like? What clients do you want? What customers do you want? And I get the same kind of blank stare. It's like, well, but no, there's a kind of client I should have. And there's a kind of product I should develop. No, 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 no. You get to choose. It's your business. What do you want to do? Now, what you want might need some tweaking and some adapting to make it really effective. But we still got to start from what you actually want to build or do or spend your time doing. So yeah, I, I, very similar. 
Well, and I love the ethos of what works being that you're sharing your experience. We're not you have kind of the anti-guru standpoint, because I think that's where a lot of these default decisions come from is somebody with a big course and a big marketing platform said, you need a course and I'll teach you how to build your course and I'll teach you how to scale your businesses. And we get so used to that being there that somebody's out there to hand us a framework or to teach us a course or whether or not it works for us. Um, you know, there's elements of good in all of those courses and all of those frameworks, but it's very difficult and we're not really trained to think about what part of this works well for me. What part of this can I apply to my own business? What can I take out of this and use from their experience versus just expecting somebody to hand it to you? And I think particularly online businesses, particularly service businesses, there isn't anything, there is no framework, there's nothing that says, here's how you have to run your business in a way like the running store, it had to be a running store, you know, it was a store, I had to have shoes in it, like it wasn't, it couldn't really be anything else. It was a physical thing. But in the online space, we don't, we don't have that. But I love the aspect that you're kind of actively trying to combat that here's what your business should look like. What about all these other things you could do? Okay, so changing gears a little bit, when you made the decision to switch to a community based business model, you ended up taking a pretty good hit on your personal income. And how did you manage that both personally, but particularly with your business? Did you make any specific decisions about where to spend money? Or did that change any of the ways that you were thinking about investing in your business or spending money with your business? Yes, to all of that. <laughs> um, so personally, I did not handle it well at first. We're in a place now where we are handling it awesome. And I feel really good about that. But at the beginning, it was sort of like my thought process, I'd gotten so used to the amount of money that I was bringing home as a, as a business owner that I literally month by month by month would say next month, it'll be different. Next month, it'll be different. Next quarter, it'll be different. Six months from now, this won't be a problem anymore. Well, you can imagine what that does to your personal financial situation. And mine is not terrible. It's not what I want it to be uh, because of that. But at the same time, that was the world that I was operating in. I really, I believed so firmly in what we were doing and also was so comfortable with what I was able to achieve before that it felt like I'm going to turn a corner at any point in time. This is not going to be a problem anymore. In terms of what it changed inside the business, the amount of revenue we are or are not bringing in has not really changed the way I spend money in the business to a point, and it's in other ways, it certainly has. But I knew that when we changed business models, I needed to be ready to invest in a team. Because just like, you know, we're building Yellow House Media to scale from the get-go, I wanted to build what works to scale from the get-go. And to me, that meant more than just being able to sell an infinite number of memberships. There's a difference between being able to sell an infinite number of memberships and being able to take care of an infinite number of members. And so I wanted to make sure that we could take care of the members I fully believed were going to be walking through the door at any moment, the virtual door, of course. And I wanted to make sure that we were prepared for that before it ever happened. So we, in terms of the What Works business, we hired our community team pre-revenue. Now, we had plenty of revenue still coming in from the old business before, you know, in terms of payment plans and clients that were still with us and things like that for a period of time. And so for the first six months or so, it felt really comfy. After that, it started to feel a little more tense and a little more tense and a little more tense because we were essentially still pre-revenue on the community. Yes, there was money coming in, but not at the level that would actually sustain the team that we had. But what was most important to me, like I said, was making sure that we had that capacity, making sure that we had that foundation, making sure that when we said, you are not a number in this community, that that was true from an operational perspective. We're not counting on you to join and then forget to post or to join and then never contact us. We expect you to join and to post 
every day. We expect you to join and shoot us a message and say, hey, Shannon, hey, Tara, hey, Kristen, can you help me formulate this question into a post? Yes, yes, we can do that for you. That was really, really important to me. So even as you know, our revenue plans didn't pan out the way we thought they were going to, staying invested in that team has been really important to me. So we've certainly chose to dial down investments in other areas, which has meant really getting clear about where my hands-on work is most important. My hands-on work is most important in marketing, even given what I said about having to completely relearn how to do marketing. That's what I'm best at. That's how I serve the team best. So I spend a ton of time on our podcast. I spend tons of time on social media, just interacting with people, writing things, publishing things, putting things out there. And I don't know that I spend more time than anybody else. But I think a lot of people think that when you have the experience that I have, or when you've made the amount of money that I have, that that's something that you outsource, that somebody else is doing that for me. I mean, that's a question that I get all the time. It's like, who does your social media for you? I do my social media for me. Who writes your copy? I write my copy. Who writes your emails? I write my emails. I am the hands-on marketing director. I am the marketing intern. I am the marketing assistant. I do all of those things because we didn't have the money for that. And I don't know that I would have outsourced most of it anyhow, but that's where we've chosen to say I can subsidize our team by being the marketing department If that means then that I know when I finally get marketing exactly right and the hordes come through the digital door, that we have a community team in place that can handle that capacity. And so that's essentially where we are today, although way more people are coming through the door and that's wonderful. (laughs) But we're at a place still where the operations of the business can sustain a much bigger business than what we have right now. And that actually makes me feel really good. It took me a long time to get to that place. I thought very much about money, my personal income, the revenue of the business as a status of whether I was successful or not, um, whether I had credibility in the market or not, because we're in the small business space. But now I look at it and say, Tara, you have built a business that has the capacity to welcome thousands. That's incredible. Now get out there and find those thousands and get them through the door. But it is amazing that this is the capacity that we have and that we can fulfill our promise to that group of people based on the expenses that we have right now. So our goal is to continually add on incrementally, little bit by little bit, month over month, what our baseline revenue is, as any subscription-based business does hoping and knowing that that hockey stick day will come and and we will see the fruits of the work that we've done on our capacity come out in terms of revenue. I don't know if that answers that question no, that or not. No, t- that totally okay. does. Lots of questions <laughs> beyond that, I think. But before we kind of, we're running a little short on time. So before we wrap up, is there anything we haven't talked about that you think we should? Yeah, just one thing that we had kind of talked about pre-interview, which is this idea of sort of growing up and scaling or like growing up and operations, just because this has been on my mind so much. And I've talked about kind of, you know, sidestepped it a little bit through my answer so far today, because I talked about how I was off in the bottleneck. I talked about how I just couldn't make a sauna work. I talked about, you know, my team having to work around me, that I was so much the problem At some point, in order to scale up, in order to break through the ceiling, in order to um, re-examine my own default decisions, I had to decide that the flexible, fly-by-the-seat-of-my-pants kind of person that I like to think of myself as needed to grow up and follow instructions sometimes, (laughs) right? If I wanted my team to work to a process, I had to be willing to work to a process. If I wanted my team to document stuff, I had to be willing to document stuff. And so I stopped giving myself a pass because I was some creative entrepreneur type and started growing up and saying, I'm going to execute as best as I can in, in the way that we have defined because that's what I expect of everybody else. And They have appreciated it for sure, but I have also really appreciated it. It has been such a growth experience for me, not only as a business owner, but as a human being to say that just because I 
like doing things differently every time I do them. Also, who actually likes that? But just because I think I like that doesn't mean it's the best way to do it. And if I practice doing it the same way four or five times, guess what? It's easy to do it the same way the next four or five times. And that has been just such a huge lesson to me. And I think that it's going to make possible whatever the next level of success looks like for us. No, I absolutely agree with that. And that's a common, I think it's a common founder position. So I talk to a lot of a lot of the clients I work with, a lot of the founders that I talk to have that same thing where they're like, oh, my team has a process or my team tracks time, but right. I don't track time. And when I say, well, how, how much time are you spending on a project? I don't know. Well, then that kind of ties into you actually have no idea how profitable you are or how profitable your projects are because you're just not counting yourself as a full member of this business, not approaching yourself as being part of your team and recognizing, like I think you did, was recognizing that as the leader of the team, it's almost most important that you have a clear process so that you can properly present that to your team as an expectation. And they also know that you are part of the team that's going to make this happen. Where oftentimes, you're right, there's a lot of team members that are good with a process, that have developed a process, that they're sometimes even a process that is like designed to compensate for you not following the process. Yes. <laughs> you know, they have established a system to work around the fact that you aren't working with the rest of the system. And so I think it's interesting that one that you recognized it and then we're able to actually take the action, like you said, to grow up into the founder role, into the CEO role, into the role that says, I'm the leader of this team and also a part of it and part of what makes the operations happen, even though that's not necessarily where you kind of operate in the business. The operations isn't your focus, the focus is the marketing, but that recognizing that even though that's not your focus, you actually fulfill a critical piece of that system, making it work and making it scalable. I love that concept of just growing up, particularly into that role and recognizing that sometimes your natural instincts aren't necessarily true. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. I really, I love digging into this. This was so much fun. So I really appreciate you coming and talking to us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Susan. If you're interested in connecting with Tara, head over to explorewhatworks.com and check out the What Works podcast, where she talks to business owners about what's working in their own businesses. And if you're interested in hearing more from Tara and me, I'll be a guest on the What Works podcast this Thursday, talking about technology and scaling. So come have a listen there. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this valuable, I would love for you to subscribe in your favorite podcast platform and share it with at least one person that you know that might benefit from it. 